0: This summer has been a violent one, with fiery turmoil in Milwaukee and fatal shootings by police in Baton Rouge and Minnesota, followed by deadly attacks on officers in places like Dallas. And the relationship between law enforcement and the citizens they serve is factious and badly in need of repair. U.S. Attorney General Loretta Lynch has been traveling around the country visiting police departments.
1: To say that there is sort of a frayed relationship of trust between law enforcement in many communities, particularly minority communities, is the understatement uh, of this generation.
0: In Aspen, Colorado, she addressed the problem of how America got from police who protect to police who occupy neighborhoods. Her comments, along with others embedded in the debate, on this episode of Aspen Ideas To Go. This is Aspen Ideas To Go. The podcast that features compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other events presented by the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Lynch spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival in July. She's been helping police departments implement recommendations from the President's Task Force on 21st Century Policing. It's meant to strengthen trust between communities and law enforcement. Here's a short excerpt from her talk. Lynch is interviewed by Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post.
1: Uh, so what I've been working on, and this is one, in fact, one of my priorities, is looking at communities that have had that frayed relationship, that have had uh, things break down, that have had the violence of Baltimore or a terrible incident involving uh, someone losing their life at the hands of a police officer, or even a Department of Justice case against them, and looking at how they are a couple of years after that. Have they managed to use the tools that we tried to provide to them and in fact create a positive working relationship between law enforcement and the community? And I actually have been very heartened Hmm. by what I've seen across the country.
2: I was gonna ask you, how have police departments, how receptive have they been to these recommendations, particularly the one that says that police departments need Mm -hmm. to own their past.
1: I often talk to community members who will say, you know, things are great with this police chief. We're actually making very positive strides. But community members will say, but you know, five years ago, this incident happened to me. Or even 10 years ago, I saw this happen to my older sibling or parent. And that, re- that remains in people's consciousness and affects how they interact with the police. A couple of the jurisdictions that I visited I was actually in Los Angeles just yesterday. Um, and I also went uh, to Miami. Uh, and I was in Portland, and I was visiting those jurisdictions because they actually were still in the middle of resolving problems. I mean the Los Angeles Police Department's history I think is well documented and the issues that they had. Um, they were under a consent decree in the 2000s. They've come out of that now, but I think certainly residents still recall those days. Uh, and so I was very heartened to see in my discussions, both with police leadership and community members, that no one was ignoring the past that people were saying, you know, we have to own the past and we have to acknowledge that we have contributed, we, law enforcement, have contributed to these problems, and here's what we are doing to be accountable, to be transparent, to be responsible, to pull community members in. Because without that acceptance of responsibility, there won't be trust mm-hmm. in, the new, in the new either regime or policies going
2: forward. Now, a few years ago, FBI Director James Comey Gave, delivered a speech on race, pretty spectacular speech on race, where he talked about how law enforcement needed to own its past. Another thing that FBI Director Comey has said on several occasions is that he believes that there is a so-called Ferguson effect on law enforcement mm-hmm. jurisdictions. Do, do you agree with him? Is there a Ferguson effect? Meaning that as a result of what happened in Ferguson and Charleston, where people are videotaping law enforcement actions, that police officers are now wary to actually do their jobs
1: what I've seen you know as I've as I've talked to police departments across the country and community members across the country is a lot of change in law enforcement a lot of change um, at the level of training a lot of change in the level of community involvement a movement away from over policing a movement towards getting to know members of the community uh, getting to understand people and their problems and certainly I think it is the hope of all of us in law enforcement that that will lead to not only a reduction in crime but it certainly could lead to a reduction in the the number of arrests. I have not seen police officers shirking their responsibilities. I have not seen police officers backing away from the hard issues that come from patrolling very difficult and often very dangerous communities. I've seen them moving towards that. I've seen them come to the Department of Justice and say, You know, I have a use of force policy that's really old. Can you help me make sure mine is up to date? I've seen them come to the department and say, I want to set up a community board. Do you have some examples that I can look at so that I don't have a situation like I've seen in other police departments? So I've seen a lot of positive action from both community members and law enforcement in this regard.
0: Still, the distrust between police and citizens, especially in minority communities, seems to be coming to a boiling point. In mid-August, destructive protests erupted in a section of Milwaukee after police shot and killed an armed black man. Outside of the federal government, what else can be done to change the culture of policing? And, in a time when it's hard to recruit new officers, how can departments attract good people? How have movements like Black Lives Matter changed the conversation? Panelists went over these issues at the Aspen Ideas Festival in June. Black Lives Matter activist DeRay McKesson, who was arrested in July during a demonstration in Baton Rouge, was on stage along with NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund President Sherilyn Eiffel and former Tucson Police Chief Roberto Villaseñor. Host and executive producer of NPR's Latino USA, Maria Hinojosa, moderated the discussion. Hinojosa begins by asking McKesson if trust between police and communities of color can be rebuilt.
3: I think I'm hopeful that we can. I'm nervous because we know to be true that there's a shadow justice system here in the country when it comes to holding police officers accountable. So we think about things like the police union contracts, we think about use of force policies, where in plain sight, the police just have protections that normal citizens don't. So in cities across the country, officers cannot be uh, Drug-tested officers can't be interrogated in the first 48 hours, the first 10 days. Officers' disciplinary files are automatically deleted or destroyed in every two years, every five years. There's like a set of protections that ensure that officers won't be held accountable. And until we deal with those structural things, I think it'll be really hard to get to a place where there's actual trust between c- police departments and communities. Structural issues that that make this trust difficult to build.
4: Shirley, can it be, it has to be, but in your view, how tangible is it precisely in this moment, 2016? So first we, we have to
5: properly identify what we're trying to accomplish. I wanna take issue with the idea of rebuilding trust between African American communities or minority communities and, and the police because um, there is no evidence that there was once a period of trust. Um, this is a very long longstanding um, issue that thanks to the incredible energy protests and the just absolutely being fed up of young people across this country has come to the national spotlight over the last two years, but it's an issue that, I mean, my organization is 76 years old, was founded by Thurgood Marshall, who worked on issues of police violence, um, you know, in the South against African-American, uh, uh, unarmed African-Americans. We worked on a case in 2013 that I thought was going to blow this issue up all over the country involving a young man named Robbie Tolan, who was shot by police in, um, in Texas. I'm sure you all probably don't know who Robbie Tolan is, but I thought this was gonna be the case because um, Robbie Tolan was a very, um, uh, was a young man, 23 years old, driving home, police followed him home, couldn't believe he had a nice car, followed him to his driveway, which was his parents' home in Bel Air, Texas. And his parents came out and said, that's our son, like, what are you talking about? And within 30 seconds of the police calling back up, he was shot. Robbie Tolan survived, but I thought this case was gonna be the case because he was a Major League Baseball player and his father had been a Major League Baseball player. But you all have never heard of Robbie Tolan, um, So I say all that to say this has been going on for some time and it has been brought to national consciousness. The last thing I wanna say just, just, just about the scope of the problem is that we really have to take account of how big the problem is and it, where it emanates from. Um, just last week, uh, the Supreme Court decided a case called Utah versus Streef. Um, involving whether or not a police officer could use evidence that he obtained pursuant to an illegal stop. And many people were writing about this extraordinary dissent that was written by um, Justice Sonia Sotomayor. And in this dissent, um, you know, she cites to the Ferguson Report and Black Lives Matter and Ta-Nehisi Coates. But most importantly, what she does over the course of two pages is that she talks about the license that has been given to law enforcement pursuant to arrests and stops Um, for average citizens and the way in which that license has been given by Supreme Court decisions. And I think that hasn't been focused on enough. This isn't going to be just about local policies and practices, there are a set of decisions that the Supreme Court has put in place that has created this space in which this conduct can go forward
4: and so we have to be prepared to address that as well. Okay, Roberto, so from the law enforcement side, um, you tend to say almost immediately, look, you can't blame law enforcement for everything you can't no. ex- and you can't expect that law enforcement fixing law enforcement is going to fix everything
6: Law enforcement can be blamed for some things I think that we own certain actions that we've done historically and we have to acknowledge that we can't sit here and act like some of these things that occurred during the civil rights movement prior you know law enforcement oftentimes built out of runaway slaves being captured and brought back. That's some of the history of, quote, law enforcement. So we have to acknowledge that and understand how that sets us up for positions of distrust with oftentimes communities that we are supposed to serve. But I think what really bothers me is law enforcement is bearing the brunt of all societal issues right now because we're the most visible arm of government. You just heard Cheryl talk about Supreme Court decisions. Well, when the Supreme Court uphold certain actions how is it that the police are the ones that are to blame and the police are the ones that are going to be castigated by the public saying well the police are doing this this is because the direction of our justice system says this is how we want police to act this is acceptable so we as police have to be leaders and say okay it may be legal but is it right and that's going to take a long time to turn this I, I, D. Ray said I agree I think it can be done it has to be done but I don't think it's going to be done quickly.
4: So, Duray, go on. I just. Uh, Roberto was saying something about um, structures in place, and you looked yeah. at me
3: like. Uh, I get that. I, I do get that the police have a very visible role when it comes to being public ambassadors, but there is something. Uh, Real, those of us who were in Ferguson and in Baltimore and cities across the country, the police were violent in ways that was inexcusable, right? Like we shouldn't have been tear gassed or pepper or pepper sprayed or any of that stuff. And the police made an active choice every day to do that to us. And you think about places like Missouri, where it was elite, you know, people look back on us in and Ferguson, and I think that we marched in solidarity with the 60s because we thought marching was some cool thing to do, it was illegal to stand still in St. Louis in August of 2014 because the police thought that that was the best way to manage space. And we think about so many people that have been killed, like Tamir or Freddie, or so many people, and like, I just won't accept this idea that the police like were bearing the brunt when they did that. Um, and it is hard because over the past 20 months, we haven't seen the police come to the table in a spirit Saying that, like we, they have to change the culture of the police department in a real way. Um, you're doing it here, which is important, but we have not seen that happen from active no. police chiefs across the country, like who are in their role. We have not. I mean, the right. true, the and, truth and is, I,
4: Roberto, that you are here, and one of the first things that you're saying is
6: the police have to own their responsibility. In public. But I'm not, I'm in, not the public. first person. This is not the only place that has been said. No, no. I'm when just, I was the chief, but there of are two, many so other I'm, part of who major will not say chiefs. that. Right? Okay, but what I'm saying there's a lot that do. And what worries me is that we paint with anecdotal brushes. I agree, what happened in Ferguson was inappropriate. It wasn't right. But I can tell you from my jurisdiction in Tucson, we escorted marchers for several days, for several miles, making sure they could safely exercise their rights. There was no tear gas used, there was no rubber bullets, there was nothing used. That occurred in jurisdiction after jurisdiction. But you don't hear those stories. All you hear about are the sensationalized ones that catch media attention, that show the the lights, the dust, the smoke, and all of that. But you don't hear about the ones where it goes across with no problems and there's no issues there.
3: Okay, well that's
6: not balance,
5: Carolyn. So so, I mean, I'm going to go back to my original point, which is about structure. Um, There has to be individual accountability for police officers who commit the kinds of acts that they committed in Ferguson, who killed Tamir Rice, who killed Freddie Gray. You can't. You can't have a a young man, you know, get in a police van, come out of a police van and when the EMT, the first EMT EMT arrives on the scene and touches him, she says his spine, his neck felt like a bag of rocks. Somebody has to be responsible for that. So I get that. Mm -hmm. But what I also think is that we have to be responsible for the structure that we have created around that conduct that allows that conduct to happen. And so when I say the Supreme Court, I don't mean like somewhere out there. you know, who decided that the Ferguson Police Department should have military equipment, right? That was the civilian leadership of Ferguson applying to the Department of Homeland Security, as many small towns do all over this country, under the theory that we wanna be able to combat terrorism to obtain these kinds of materials that you would not expect police departments in a small town to have available to them. So we have to take responsibility for every level of structure. I do wanna to speak to this issue about what do we hear about and the, the good and the bad cops and, you know, and those who are trying to, because I, I, of course nobody would suggest that all cops are 100% bad. Um, No one would suggest that there are not cops who are not trying to do the right thing. I actually worry that many of the police chiefs who have tried to tell the truth are the ones who end up being fired. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's real. Um, But, you know, there is a narrative about the police in this country that actually goes forth every day, that actually has nothing to do with what we saw in Ferguson. Right now we're talking somewhere law and order is on television, you know this, right? It's on 20 hours a day. There's a constant media narrative that has been for decades about how awesome the police are, about how they're heroes, about, you know, even when they break the law and they punch the guy, it's to get at the truth. I mean, we have a narrative that's positive about police. And I'm not saying we shouldn't have one. I'm just saying the current narrative, the one that's been underground in minority communities about the excesses of police, it's time for that narrative to be on stage so that we can put these two stories together and recreate what we really want law enforcement to look like.
3: And it's uncritical. The narrative right now is uncritical.
4: Would you say that there has been an elevated conversation? Yes. Right, there is a... I don't know if I wanna call it a hyper-awareness, but that there is an awareness that we have to be talking about this. I mean, would you say that, the three of you?
3: Yes. Oh, absolutely, yeah, for sure. For sure. And social media changed the game, right? Because we know that trauma has been happening in communities for a long time, but now we were able to talk about it in public in ways that weren't filtered by mainstream media. And that continues to be really powerful. I worry though about about how quickly we'll be able to go to the system and structure, because I agree with you, right, that this is deep and uh, it's been around for a long time but I want us to get to the police union contracts, the laws, like the use of but force you're policies, doing you're doing those sorts of, of you're, things at the same be, time.
5: If you're talking about changing culture, you're doing both at the same time. You're doing the like right now exactly what you're doing, where you're saying right now this, co- yeah. this contract's being negotiated and this is what's gonna allow police officers not to be accountable. Yeah. But you're also recognizing that there are other actors who play a huge role no matter what that contract says. If you're not dealing with prosecutors and what they do, because prosecutors know who—we talk about good cops, bad cops—they know who the bad cops are, and they use those bad cops over and over again. If you're not dealing with prosecutors, if you're not dealing with judges, if you're not dealing with all of the different structural pieces, you can't change culture.
0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. This talk Rebuilding Trust Between Police and Communities of Color was held in June at the Aspen Ideas Festival in Aspen, Colorado. Moderator and Latino USA host Maria Hinojosa continues with a question from the audience.
6: Your question. I'm from Detroit, Michigan, and again, this has been going on forever to you all's point, and so social media really brings it to bear. Um, So I guess my thought is sort of individual responsibilities with officers your selection process, whether there's, you know, psychological testing and whatnot, because it's really individuals who are using excessive force, where it has resulted in death, including like Sandra Bland, so we can't forget the women too. So how are you selecting officers to kind of try to weed out um, individuals who are just aggressive and angry, you know, of people of color just because, that's just their their purse, their spirit and who they
4: are. And Roberto, you know, you're from Arizona. Sheriff Joe Arpaio, Mm -hmm. Um, law SB Uh, 1070,
6: Um, so. Let's remember that Sheriff Arpaio is an elected official. Mm -hmm. I don't qualify him as as my representative of law enforcement. Uh, I disagree with most of the things that he he espouses and does and um, so that, that being said there, in answer to your question, there are things that we look for and things that we do try and isolate and highlight in our hiring and recruiting process. One of the biggest things and challenges that we have right now is trying to increase diversity within the police department to get us to look more like the communities that we're supposed to be serving. And it's real difficult because right now policing is not a strong draw in the minority communities as a profession. And so we have to be innovative in how we go out and try and do this. I'm looking at applications for grant monies right now, and one of the processes that I think is very promising, a lot of us have these Explorer programs, and the Explorer programs seem to have some success going out into minority communities and getting kids involved, you know, high school-aged Um, young adults involved with the things that we do, but then after high school, they disappear for three years because they can't become a police officer. Maybe we need to start looking at employment opportunities for these young adults from the time they're 18 to 21, keeping them as cadets, non-commissioned officers, serving in the department, and using that as a tool to increase our diversity and also to provide mentorship, and also to provide us connections within the community. So things such of that nature to try and increase our diversity, to get a community voice into how we train, that's another aspect. You know, We need to talk more with the community and say, okay, this is what we think is important. What do you think is important? Oftentimes we'll find that those are diametrically opposed, and so we need to try and bring their viewpoint into what we do. But Uh, and I don't mean to be argumentative here, the reality is that we're going to have differences. It's not all a simple answer, and there's times when we're going to have to use force because that's the nature of the job. That's ugly, and the problem we have right now is anytime someone's out there with a camera and catches a use of force, it's immediately portrayed as an abuse of power. That may or may not be true, but it doesn't matter what it may or may not be. It's immediately on the news goes nationwide see here's another example of police acting overboard so there's a lot of issues two things on this
5: one is um you know we we've actually represented police officers many times um, minority police officers dealing with discrimination within the department so to to deal with that diversity piece is also going to require addressing the reality of racial discrimination within police departments in terms of the employment force the second thing is that um you know, I spent a lot of time talking to the former police chief of Baltimore, Leonard Hamm, and one of the things we talk about is who are we attracting to the police department? Mm-hmm. Um, so first of all, we're attracting very young people. And I think a lot of police chiefs, probably not publicly, would tell you they prefer to have <coughs> o- officers younger. who are a little older, um, so like 25. I don't feel like I should have had a gun and um, pepper spray and a taser when I was 18, so I'm In just group. saying. And I was, I, I was a pretty cool kid, but, you know, I just don't think so. Um, so, so there's an age issue. Um, there's also an attraction issue. What, what um, a former uh, Chief Ham told me is that, you know, he said when he interviews young um, trainees and he'd ask them, what do, you, what do you see as your future in the department? And they would say, I want to be a homicide detective or, an, or a narcotics detective. He would worry about them because he would say that means they came into the department with a sense of adventure and yes. not a sense of service. So one of the things that we have to stop doing is on the brochures, having the SWAT trucks and the helicopters and people jumping out of the back. I mean, the way we're um, advertising what it means to be a Mm -hmm. police officer is very much like the way we advertise the military, which probably is also problematic. But to the extent we're um, suggesting to young people that come and join this force where you're gonna get to use this really big gun and fly this helicopter and jump out of the back of a truck, you're attracting a certain kind of person who's looking for that. So I think there's a lot to be said about reimagining what are the qualities we want police officers to have. Mm-hmm. We want them to be brave, we want them to be smart and courageous, but we also want them to have a spirit of empathy, compassionate, compassionate. we want them to talented. be a person who can manage and control their temper, we want them to be somebody who's open to training around how you deal with the mentally ill and the young and so forth. So I think that's the moment we're in also, if we're talking about the future, is who do we think should become police officers and then setting what about- What emphasize in our training and what do we emphasize that will attract that element to the um, department? Your question, yes.
2: Um, as this is being asked in Ideas Festival, you know, trying to think outside of the box of solutions to, to some of these reoccurring historic generational problems in terms of policing and communities, what would it take for you as all other law enforcement professionals to project a reduction in police? Um, one of the functions of the police is to sort of create safer, safer communities, right? So ultimately, if we have safer communities, we would need less law enforcement. I think that's a goal we should sort of like, ideological goal we should work towards. So as a law enforcement professional, what would it take for you, and what sort of tools would you need to even come to the point where you can even be thinking in that direction?
6: I think it's occurring already, and it's because of financial considerations and issues. I was in law enforcement for 35-plus years. I was a chief for seven years, and we met constantly. There was a group called Major City Chiefs, and it's the... 64 largest cities in the United States and Canada, and the chief's getting together to talk about it. I cannot tell you a time when I didn't go there and we didn't hear about we have less officers, less officers. Crime has gone down historically over the past 10 to 12 years. When crime goes down, it's no longer the driving force behind people's issues when they come to their politicians and say, this is what we want to emphasize. Therefore, funding starts to go down. We have went through the recession. All types of funding went down across the board. So departments have shrunk through attrition or layoffs just because by nature there's no money to pay for all the law enforcement officers that we had before. I could talk specifically about my department. We went down 20% in staffing. So it is occurring, and now my concern, though, is you start to see violent crime is on the rise again. And we're cyclical in nature. We're going to go where the issues come. So if crime starts to go back up, then I think that you're going to start to see more emphasis on more officers out there. And that could be a a cyclical problem along what I think you're suggesting is if we could try and devise ways to have crime stay down with less officers out there, then that would be a success. But I'm thinking if we try and train the officers to approach things differently to help
3: keep crime down, that may also be a method to get there. Direct. D- Two things, one is that we would say that the safety of our communities is not predicated on the presence of police, right? It should That if we ask you like where you feel the most safe, it's probably not in a room full of police. That you probably say like it's where your friends and family are, where people mm-hmm. love you, where there's food and shelter. And then the question becomes, how do we scale that for people, right? And the other thing is that when we think about community violence, which people talk about often, which makes sense, um, is that we would say that in the legal economy, that the way that people deal with conflict, we have a set of rules about it. People file lawsuits, we go to your employer, we sue you, something like that. We file a complaint. In the illegal economy, there's only one way that people deal with conflict, and it's through violence. So we would say any solution around community violence that doesn't actually remove people from the illegal economy into the legal economy is actually not gonna be successful. That when you have an economy that deals of conflict in one way that will all that this will be cyclical.
0: We're hearing this conversation about rebuilding trust between police and minority communities on Aspen Ideas to co a podcast from the Aspen Institute. This talk took place in late June at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Moderator Maria Inajosa brings up a story out of Oakland, California that hasn't received much media coverage. She explains what's happening there.
4: We're, we're having this conversation in a moment in our country which is, you know, we're very sad about what happened in Orlando. We're hearing about walls being built, about um, you know, what just happened in Great Britain. Um, but we're also having this conversation in the midst of a story that actually has not hit major front page national news. The story of what's happening in Oakland, California in the police department. Three police chiefs resigning uh, the in a week. continual rape of a Latina young woman um, you know, who, and people knowing about this. Can you give us some context, Sherilyn? Well, so there's that. So what, what the, the worst
5: part is that we learned about this not in the context of a prosecution. We learned about this in the context of a resignation, right? Which is a very different kind of way to think about this issue. Um, what we learned is that a whole set of police officers in the Oakland Police Department were involved with first underage, and then later on she was 18 years old, young woman who, um, when it was described um, to us, as person went to this resignation, she was described as an underage sex worker, which I think is actually an oxymoron. She's a child. Um, and several police officers were involved in this um, it, conduct with her. Um, they were involved in um, sharing information about police stings. Um, one officer ended up committing suicide. I mean, all of this, it just keeps blossoming and blossoming and blossoming. And the result was that three different police chiefs resigned in the same week um, as a result of these revelations and others that have come collateral to it. The San Francisco Police Department um, has been um, under investigation for a number of police killings, but also has been riven with Um, racist emails that have been revealed between members of the police force. So we're not not talking about Alabama. We're talking about, you know, so that San Francisco, there's Ferguson, there's Baltimore, there's New York, uh, there's North Charleston, you know, we have a nationwide problem. And that's part of why we've been talking about the cultural dimensions because it is a closed culture for the most part and Um, What can develop in a closed culture is extreme dysfunction. And when you marry dysfunction with impunity, the impunity that has been given by the Supreme Court, by prosecutors who pass this conduct, who know about this conduct but don't do anything about it, and you combine it with the issue of racial bias, and then you combine it with something we do have control over, to speak to this gentleman's question right here, we decide what conduct is criminal, by the way. So just, you know, we are in this country over the last few years deciding that we're going to treat marijuana differently than we treated it in the past. How many young people have been caught up in the criminal justice system? How many police resources have been used to engage people around the the sale and use and possession of marijuana? We can decide from one day to the next that we don't want to do that anymore. So we're really looking at this moment in which There are multiple levels of our criminal justice system that we have to engage. I worry that people will think that the problem is too big and so we can't solve it. And so I want to say to you is we got ourselves into this. It wasn't too big when we decided to pass these laws about marijuana, when we decided to let this conduct um, go, go with impunity, when, we dis- when, we, when you all probably paid no attention to the Supreme Court decision that said, hey, if you're arrested, you can be strip searched. Hey, if you're arrested, um, you, know, you can have your cheek swabbed and they can take your DNA. Everybody in this room probably knew about the FBI you know, going into your Apple phone and thought, that's a terrible invasion of privacy. But what about the fact that you can be arrested and they swab your cheek? This is just arrested, you're not convicted, and take your DNA. What, what's more private? So these are the things that we allow and we do have the ability to intercede and to wake up um, to these multiple levels where we're really responsible for creating the structure.
4: Right, and we didn't even talk about the fact that that what happens in the intersection between police and immigration, right? And talk about trust and how immigrants then are running away from police because to them, police are not necessarily the ones that are gonna save them, but the ones that could actually lead them to be separated from their family because of a simple traffic stop. Um, we have a question here. Hi, I'm Erica and I live in Chicago. I work in a high school and so I'm always curious in talking to students about avenues towards change. And uh, specifically
5: for you, DeRay, I know you started uh, grassroots and now you're running for mayor. And so I was curious if you could talk a little bit about what change looks like when we're talking about making large systemic change and knowing that the mayor does have a role with policing, uh, as I've seen very evident in Chicago and just curious about what do you think in terms of success and being successful
4: top-down versus grassroots, even though I'm sure it's a combination of both.
3: Yeah, so I I ran from there, I didn't win. The the election was April 28th at 26th, but it was a good run. In terms of what, so I agree with much of what Sherilyn said around like, this has to be a fight at every level, right? That it has to be at the courts, it has to be uh, at City Hall, it has to be at the school board, we have to fight at every space. I'm a believer today, though, most in the small changes that can change culture, that that can change structures that will make big changes in culture. So again, I, I talk about the police union contracts and use of force policies because they are seemingly really small, but you think about places like Baltimore where it is still okay to hogtie and chokehold people. So if an officer does it today, it is not against the rules, right? We can be really upset about it in, as the public, but it's not wrong today, right? And going to what Sherilyn said is that we've allowed that to happen, and the question becomes how do we Get the mayor to do an easy policy change, right? Nobody has to vote, like the city council doesn't vote on the use of force policy in Baltimore City Police Department. Or you think about places like Detroit that somebody spoke about earlier, Detroit has this 48 hour rule in their contract. So an officer cannot just be interrogated on the spot. They have to get 48 hours notice that an interrogation is gonna happen, right? Which is a protection that any lawyer can tell you their client does not get today. So we believe that if you change those structures, these seemingly small things, if you change a set of them, that it actually changes the culture. The culture becomes more countable. Um, NFL Swoop that we've seen happen in different ways with medicine, we've seen it happen in the teaching profession that you change the structure in demonstrable ways that, that the culture changes so I believe that that will have a real impact I think that there are lawyers who are fighting in the courts and I think that that has to be a part of the struggle I'm not a lawyer but when I think about what activists can do that's like really meaningful it is things like the contract it's like the use of force policy it's like the civilian oversight board you know when I think about we did this big study on police union contracts and I talk about them a lot but uh, there are clauses across the country that says the police chief is the final arbiter of discipline decisions which most people people are like, that makes a lot of sense because it's the police chief. That is the clause that people use to disempower the civilian review board, right? Because only the chief can make the decision so the review board can only make recommendations, right? And we are trying to lift up those things. When I think about what protest is at its heart, protest is this idea of telling the truth in public. And that's what we have been trying to do for the past 20 months. And we believe that there's real power in that.
4: So Roberto, um, you know, I'm in New York. Um, I was watching the stop and frisk protests from the very beginning when they were a very small group of very radical community-based um, activists who were raising this question, I don't know, maybe a, a decade ago, right? So if you were the chief then and you had this group that was just like hammering it over and over again, would you have been happy to have them around? Would happy? You have been, would you, well, would you have been saying, you know what? I'm so glad that our American democracy allows for this group of activists who are really causing me a problem because they're drawing attention to this thing, which I believe is working.
6: Well, I think heat is often a good, good thing because it causes change. And would I have been happy? No, I'm not gonna lie to you and say I would be happy about that. But I did face a very similar issue with immigration in Arizona and that we had a law that was passed that required certain things of local police officers and got us involved in immigration enforcement, which is the last thing that local police should be involved in. We should be there to protect the safety of everyone involved in our community. And how do we protect the safety of a whole class of people who now will not talk to us because they're scared that if they talk to us, we're going to turn them over to Border Patrol? I vocally opposed this law, I, I said that's not what we should be doing, but the law passed. It went up to be heard before the Supreme Court and one element of it was not overturned, which was the most onerous element, which talked about we had to check people's background when we arrested them or when we had a suspicion. We were obligated by law now to do that. So. There were a lot of people upset in a southwestern town like Tucson. I'm sure you can understand that. And I was constantly meeting with different groups. And through those meetings, there was a lot of dialogue that occurred that brought forward issues that I would not have thought of myself just looking at it from my perspective, which comes from a law enforcement perspective, and not necessarily from the people who live in the community who have to have a voice in how we develop our policies, our training, and our discipline methods. And by listening to those voices, sometimes I wasn't happy, but we came out with a a response that, for the most part, was, in my mind, very fair. There's always going to be critics. There still are, I'm sure, but at least I felt we were doing the enforcement of the law in a professional manner, and I could defend that. And so, no, I would not be happy, but I understand the necessity of that type of conversation and that type of oftentimes conflict in coming up at a suitable solution because really any decision we have going forward should probably be a little bit uncomfortable for both sides of the equation because you can't always win and you have to really try and make sure you're looking at the other viewpoints.
0: Roberto Villasenor is a former police chief and sits on the President's Task Force on 21st Century Policing. He was joined by Black Lives Matter activist DeRay McKesson, Sherilyn Eiffel of the NAACP's Legal Defense and Education Fund, and Maria Inajosa, who hosts NPR's Latino USA. They spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival in late June. Right after that discussion, violence between law enforcement and citizens grabbed headlines with deadly shootings by police of black men in Minnesota and Louisiana, followed by fatal attacks on officers. We caught up with Roberto Villasenor to see what he has to say about the latest violence. Villasenor served 35 years in the police department in Tucson, Arizona, six as police chief. You heard him in the earlier talk at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Roberto, thanks for joining us.
6: Absolutely.
0: Since you spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival, a lot has changed. The charges in the Freddie Gray case have been dropped. Philando Castile was shot and killed by a police officer in Minnesota. Alton Sterling was killed by police in Baton Rouge, and police officers were killed in Baton Rouge and in Dallas, and now there's unrest in Milwaukee. I mean, how how do these new events change the conversation?
6: I don't know if they change the conversation as much as intensify the conversation. This is not subsiding. This is not something that is going to go away with time, and I think it needs to be addressed. And I believe that the profession is recognizing that. What my concern is, though, is the emotion and the tension is so you're almost palpable out, out there that I'm worried about the ability to get to a place where we can have open, honest discussion and try and deal with the issues. I know there's a lot of groups trying to accomplish that. And my hope is that um, we will be able to do so. And And, and you know, to be honest, I know that there are a lot of concerns on both sides that need to be addressed. And I think that if we can just get both camps, so to speak, to work with each other, this can be resolved and improved.
0: What's the fallout among police officers? I mean, I think that's probably the the biggest difference since the conversation that happened at the festival is that now police officers have been killed you know, these two incidents in Baton Rouge and Dallas. So what's that been like um, from the inside and when you talk to your colleagues?
6: Well, there's a couple different concerns. One, officers are worried about receiving support from their administrations and and their command when these type of incidents happen and they will continue to happen. It's, It's just part and parcel of police work. Use of force has always been a part of police work. It's just never been so visible before. And I think that's because of modern technology is making it much more visible. And it's ugly. Every time it happens, it's ugly. There's just no way you can dress that up. And when that gets exposed and people realize the realities of police work, it makes some people uncomfortable and some people question the tactics. And so officers are concerned if they just use any type of force, there's immediately cameras coming out and are they going to be backed? Or are they going to be, in their words, thrown under the bus? On the other hand, I think that there's also a fear of officers failing to act because of those concerns. And that's something that would be very harmful to the profession and to the communities um, if officers are hesitant to do their jobs. So it is something that I think officers are are concerned about. I think they're very vigilant now. I'm sure you heard. Reference the uh, the gang in California, or actually, it's started in California, but it's elsewhere that have openly targeted um, police officers and are advocating the harm and killing of police officers during the month of August. And so that is caused some increased vigilance on the part of officers as well, which just makes the situation that much more tense.
0: How much are police tactics to blame in during this violent time that we're seeing now?
6: I think that tactics always have to be reviewed and updated. And also there needs to be, you know, the tactic itself may be a valid tactic, but it has to be reviewed in context of each individual situation. So when you have a minor level crime, is it appropriate to use lethal force just because the individual may not be complying with an order. You know, we need to start looking at things and saying, in the context of everything that's going on, what is appropriate to do for them? What is necessary to do? And so tactics are something that we're always going to be hypercritical of as a profession. We need to be able, and this is something the task force report talks about, we need to be able to assess ourselves and be critical without fear of repercussion within our agencies. And that's one of the things that I think we can do a better job at because officers tend to want to say everything is fine because they don't want to not be backed by their department. They don't want to feel that they're gonna get in trouble if they made a mistake. You know, They're human beings, human beings make mistakes, but if you always try and say you're always right, then you're never gonna improve. And so we need to look at our tactics. We need to find ways to adjust them when they're wrong and also when we use them wrong to hold ourselves accountable.
0: The Black Lives Matter movement has been criticized for being divisive and for inspiring violence against police officers, according to the New York Times. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts are around this movement.
6: I, To be honest, I would tend to agree with that. I understand the motivation. I understand the... Genesis of that movement was to try and make a point that there needs to be concern for Black Lives and Black Lives Matter. However, I think it has gone beyond that point. It has become you know, very confrontational to police, um, and it's very much part of the issue that's going on now. Instead of healing things, what I have seen, and this is my personal opinion it has become much more divisive than working as a healing force.
0: Is this political season adding fuel to the fire when it comes to race and violence in this country? And if so, how?
6: Well, I think any political season (laughs) always adds fuel to any fire that's going on within society because that's what politics is about. And I think that you have seen some of that here when you have, um, The topics that are so prevalent in today's media being used on the campaign speeches. And so I think that there has been some of that that has occurred. I'm not surprised in that, but I I look back at other presidential elections and other political campaigns and and elections, and I think that's always been the case. So I, I wouldn't be willing to say that this is much more than any other time. I just think the fervor of the nation around this topic has made it a little bit more pointed.
0: So I'm also wondering, for people who are in non-minority communities, or maybe kind of feel like concerned bystanders in an issue like this, do you have any recommendations of of what they can do?
6: Well, I, I think that, you know, becoming involved at any level in government is an important component. And when I say government, I'm talking about what you can do within your community to make things better. One of the things that I'm very pleased about in the agency that I'm working with is their level of volunteerism that they have established within their community. They have residents who want to come out and stand in in observation platforms to watch you know, shopping malls to extend the eyes and ears of police. They have residents that go out and they work with the mentally ill to, to help. And they do that in conjunction with police. And so the involvement of residents just in any aspect that they feel qualified and able to help in within their community is always helpful.
0: Well, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Roberto Villasenor sits on the President's Task Force on 21st Century Policing. He's a former police chief in Tucson, Arizona. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more about the Aspen Ideas Festival at AspenIdeas.org. Follow the festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and myself and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs. Thanks for listening.